Hey everyone and welcome back to another episode. Hope you have your coffees ready. Uh, super excited to do this episode, specifically talking to Ryan Walsh, the CEO of Valkari. Valkari developed a patented intelligent mailbox that is compatible with both traditional and future delivery modes, specifically focused around drones. So for all you drone fanatics, this is definitely your episode. Uh, and what's even more exciting is Ryan, previous to Valkari, served in the U.S. Army with the 75th ranger regiment which we do get into the conversation about the intersection between lessons learned during his days in the army and with his entrepreneurial journey today this is the let's grab coffee podcast and i'm your host george Khalife. what i love about your story and for those who don't know uh you know you're in the in the drone space uh primarily but getting in the drone space isn't easy and as the co-founder and ceo of valkari uh, which is actually a Chicago-based company. I'm just curious. Take us back to the to the early days, right, of entrepreneurship. How and how did, how and when did you really get into the startup scene, becoming kind of your own CEO? I'm just kind of curious as to the origination story. Let's put it that way. Um, so I have started multiple small businesses in the past, but always, you know, small businesses, you know, very geographically, um, constrained in a lot of cases. Um, and so that really laid the foundation on dealing with employees, growing a company, being fiscally responsible. Um, my co-founder Alex has been with me on a majority of them. So uh, we've had a really good working relationship together over many years in many companies. Um, but where we got into drones was really when we started looking more in depth at how to take that next step, right? Each of those small businesses gave me um, a different uh, perspective, you know, on different industries, different commodities, services versus goods, you know, manufacturing and, and so on. So it really gave us a very holistic view on what we needed. And, you know, while all of those companies are still running and successful today, you know, we put our partners in charge of them. Um, it really taught us a lot. And then we mixed that a lot with my special operations background, um, you know, trying to anticipate and strategize on where specific industries were going, competitors in the space, you know, so on and so forth. And so it gave us a really novel view on how we got to Valkyrie. And so um, it was back in 2013, you know, Alex and I were looking for our, our next move. And um, we just had a patent that got knocked out by the Alice VCLS decision in the Supreme Court. Um, you know, it was mostly a software patent. And, you know, we put a lot of time and effort and some early money into it. And it was very heartbreaking to get that, you know, turnaround from the Supreme Court. So we started looking at what was our next move. We weren't really going to take that hit lying down. We wanted to come back even bigger and, and figure out the next move, right? I mean, you're only a failure if you give up, right? right? So we looked at drones. It was right about when there were small murmurs of commercial viability for drones Amazon had just announced. And so Alex and I were discussing you know, all the possibilities. And we saw that drones, while very novel in themselves, were not necessarily new technology. The, the military had been um, 
doing testing with drones all the way back into the 30s and 40s in some cases. Um, you know, not necessarily as we see them today, but still a lot of the same mechanics. Um, and so trying to get a market cornering IP and build a system where you can become, you know, a big tech company seemed like it was going to be very difficult on the drone end. And so we were analyzing what everybody um, was was kind of whispering about, and it seemed it was all around the drone and the flight itself, very little about the customer interaction. And so our strategy was, we know the drones are going to fly. The military has had drones flying for you know two decades, three decades in service. Um, how do we figure out how to make this mainstream for the customer? And so we decided to sell pickaxes when everybody was going after the gold and that turned out to be the landing station. So we filed patent applications and started working on the technology and, you know, Valkyrie evolved from that. Yeah. I think what's super cool is that last part that you, you mentioned is like when, you know, I think when the, when the drone space was coming out, everybody was focused on the actual delivery, like the, the vehicle themselves, um, you know, the operating the drones as an example, or on the maintenance side, anything related to, the actual drone that was flying something from A to B and doing something from A to B. Uh, and there's obviously a, a buttload of applications that can go through it, whether that's delivery or scanning and agriculture, as an example. Um, you, you guys took that different approach. I'm curious, like, I, I think the, the, the gem in there is like, how, do you, how did you, or what was the process that you took to find a space that was less served, but seemingly as, if not more attractive? Yeah, it was kind of going back to that military background, right? Being a ranger and in, in special operations, you know, we learned a lot about small unit tactics and that's not very much different than how startups need to operate, right? It's a very lean environment. You're not in a comfortable position. You don't have a lot of recourse if something goes wrong. So how do you maximize your effectiveness and efficiency and minimize the potential risk, right? And so we were looking and it came to, came to us, you know, when you lay an ambush, you don't lay it where the enemy is now, you lay it where they're going to be, right? Mm -hmm. You get a choke point that you know they're gonna go through and bottleneck and then spring your ambush. Um, and so we were looking at this and as you mentioned, right? I mean, drones and what everybody had started demonstrating, especially over the last seven years is, you know, we either land in your yard, we tether a package down from a drone and, um, you know, while all of those have their specific merits in certain situations, it doesn't really solve the problems of drone delivery. And that's how do you secure the package? How do you make sure it's convenient and not a novelty, right? I mean, especially with the winter we just had in Chicago, I wouldn't imagine standing in my driveway waiting for a package for 15 minutes and have to secure it, right? Um, so how do we make sure that we automate the beginning and last 5% and not just the 90% in the middle? And that's really where we started focusing. All of the, the drone companies were really taking a top-down approach and it was focused on the drones, just like you had mentioned, right? Whereas we wanted to go bottom up, right? How does the customer interact with a drone delivery? How do we make this more convenient so they don't have to be home, so they're not waiting outside, so they can get what they need quicker, cheaper, better without having to start changing their routine or, or sacrificing something out of, you know, their day. Um, and so it really 
came back to this universal landing station application. Hmm. Yeah, it's, and I think what's really interesting, and hopefully folks can can check out a you know the video on this because I think it like that to me was was probably the the best thing to see to really understand the capability. It's not just landing and kind of dropping off a package, but it drops it off specifically to think of it as like your personal mailbox. And I think that's what the software in the back end is doing to actually make this more efficient so that you're not having to wait outside for, to in your example, 15 minutes, you know, in the Chicago winter. Right, right. I mean, you know, the mailbox in itself, it's it's complicated, but it's definitely not a rocket. You know, it's exactly. not it's not a you know self-driving vehicle in that capacity. Um but there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes, right? The authentication between the drone and the landing station and the, the communication between the landing station and the customer and all of the backend scheduling and routing and, and aircraft deconfliction. That's all very important to make sure there's a safe delivery every single time. And this is a ongoing operation and not just, you know, something unique to you know, hey, this is great. And then you go back to the way we were doing it before. Um, so we really wanted to make sure that every facet, every nuance was thought through and we weren't comfortable publicly unveiling it until we did. And, and I think, you know, one of the other interesting points, having, you know, uh, having had certain conversations with you uh, is the understanding that, especially from an investor perspective, right? The the, the sort of concern immediately when you think of the drone space, especially if you think of like operating drones themselves, i.e. flying, is the, the, the licenses or some of the requirement, the added requirements that are, um, that maybe add, I guess, scrutiny, right, to, to, to the drone space in general. But you basically uh, deflect all of that, right? Operating is only the, the landing spot. Was that something you guys thought of day one? Yeah, you know, going up against companies like Amazon and, and you know, UPS and all of those, why would I want to compete with them? Right? Exactly. I mean, it's, it's almost a crazy proposition to think I would go toe to toe on the drone side. And so we tried to circumnavigate all of that, right? And it ended up being very beneficial because we aren't flying, we aren't regulated by the FAA in that capacity, although I think that will change as things move forward. Um, it's, it's really about how do you create the most efficient and best possible system at scale, right? It's, uh, you know, for us, it was how do we be partners and friends with all of those companies and take deliveries from any of their drones and in doing so become the de facto standard application for landing stations. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious if you, if you sort of ran into any hurdles early on, because I think the other part of this is, although you have a software component, there's obviously a massive hardware, but also kind of like a mechanical engineering component to this, right. With, with actually structuring maybe the, 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 the physical landing uh, box itself with the software, making it work seamlessly together, coordinating with the drone that drops off a, a package. There's a lot that goes into this. That, I'm assuming, would require a lot of capital up front. And I think the the natural consensus, specifically in like the, the private world of raising cap, is you know raising for hardware or cap intensive products is typically more challenging than software. So I'm curious for especially aspiring founders listening who might be interested in a space like this or something similar. What advice or, or kind of lessons learned have you experienced along the way? You know, you hit the nail on the head. You know, people are very, very hesitant, especially early on. Um, yeah. 
put money into hardware because it is so notoriously expensive, right? If you need to make changes on software, you know, tweak your app and you change some code, mm -hmm. right? But hardware, if you have to make changes, it becomes very time consuming, very resource intensive, very capital intensive. And so, um, you know, it takes almost a special kind of crazy to, to get into hardware, I think, you know, it, but the end goal is those are the pieces that really are the foundation of, of how we live, right? The, the vehicles, the systems that actually make things happen in our world, right? The phones and, and all of these advancements, it's really the key, right? I mean, you can make an app, but if you have the phone, right, you control all the apps on there. Mm. And so the payoff and the risk to reward ratio for hardware was just so much more intensive. I mean, after that, that Alice VCLS decision that I had mentioned from the Supreme court, it was next to impossible really for a number of years to get any kind of IP protection on software. And it's still very difficult, but it's, it's marginally better. Um, but we wanted something we could protect. I mean, at the time, you know, for the first, five years we were a two-man team and we were bootstrapping it completely out of pocket and so being able to get this thing going really required that we had some kind of ip protection so hardware really lent itself much better to that um and so it's difficult very difficult from a capital raising point of view especially through your seed round i mean until you have real market bit and market traction, um, a lot of investors just won't even talk to you. So, you know, if you're going into that, it's, you have to be prepared to bootstrap for a long time. Mm. And, and for those wondering, like, especially on the, on the IP side, that that's another kind of challenging thing to, to go through. And, and I haven't had a lot of folks who I've, I've kind of delved more deeply into this, but just curious, maybe from a, from a snapshot or, or high level perspective, how, how did you manage, assuming this, this might have been maybe the, some of the first IPs you've, you've worked on uh, for, for Valkari uh, and, and some of its elements, like how does, how does one go about creating IP around specifically like hardware or software that they're creating? You know, we uh, had a relationship with a patent attorney and, you know, we had worked uh, with them in the past for uh, doing that that first application and so we we started building that rapport and so you know once you have your idea it's imperative that you go and find a good ip attorney and i can't stress that enough a good ip attorney there are you know really great attorneys and, and really you know questionable attorneys just like any other space um you know one that's willing to really take your ideas and, and build a robust sound patent application out of it um, is probably one of the most important things uh, you know having the quintessential patents that we do for the industry ended up being incredibly important in the long term because you know if you're going to put all this money into hardware you have to make sure somebody's not going to come and just take it right so we really buckled down it was funny we we came up with this um, you know, in 2013, and when we were ready to start filing our applications, it was right around the holidays. And, you know, Alex and I pretty much called our families and said, hey, we're, we're skipping Christmas this year and just worked morning till night, 
you know, living on my, my couches in my, my living room, just with our laptops in front of us, just typing and typing and typing and drawing pictures and everything we needed to get this application in. Because, you know, especially with how first to file laws are, you have to be in and you have to disclose everything you can as, as early as possible. Um, so not really sitting on the idea, you know, you talk to a lot of guys and they'll be, Oh, I'm kicking this idea around. Like if you're kicking it around, it might already be too late and more than likely is. Um, so that impetus to act and act swiftly is incredibly important in getting it off the ground. Right. Cause if you don't have the hardware built yet, you don't have, you know, a customer base yet. What do you really have for an investor to hang their hat on that mm-hmm. says these are the guys? What did you find excited, I guess, investors the most while you guys were, were getting the idea for Valkyrie off the ground? Like, I mean, in, in the sense of like, when did you start having serious conversations? Once you, you got kind of the, the internal workings uh, going, there's a bit of traction. When did you start having those conversations? And what did you realize interested potential investors the most about what you guys were trying to build? You know, it was really the the blue ocean possibilities and just how big the reward would be for the risk. Um, you know, there's very few moments in history where you really have that ability to, you know, become that next tech giant, right? I mean, they call this industry 4.0 now, right? And, um, you know, we saw it with the dot-coms and we saw it with web 2.0. There's just these moments in economic cycles where something opens up, a new technology comes out, a smartphone, whatever, and it creates a, a vast opportunity. And those early investors that really contributed to our seed round, um, they saw that possibility. They, they really said, you know, this is game changing. We see this being the future. Um, you know, it was extremely important to be able to show them a clear path to a big big market um you know it's not about incrementally changing something small in an existing market and trying to you know squeeze a couple dollars out of the margins right i mean Mm -hmm. it's going to cost a lot of money up front but the reward and the the market size and everything else has to be just exponentially bigger so it's just finding the people that have those visions right i mean you'll talk to a number of investors and they want very low risk very um uh, consistent returns you know hard timelines and you can't really give that in a nascent industry when you're building hardware especially so you know it was finding the right people early on to invest in us Dude, I'm I'm just curious from your perspective, especially given your military background, like how do you persist? I mean, it sounds easier said than done, obviously. Um, and, and I'm sure like like all of us, I mean, we, have, we you know, there's some good days, some some more challenging days. But as an entrepreneur, like a lot of your self-identity is tied to this baby, right? It's, it's tied to this idea, something that you work on day in and day out. And nobody really knows that, even investors, like they're just seeing 10% of the story, if that, if you even allow that. Uh, I'm curious, like, how do you persist when you get all these no's early on in a, in a sector, to your point, that's nascent, that's still on the come up, that you just have to kind of bite down on your mi- mouth guard and, and just keep pushing forward and, and really, really believe in that, you know, that there's something there. How do you do that? You know, I think uh, being a ranger kind of prepared me for it. And 
Alex and I were knowing that going in that it was going to be an uphill climb until the end. Um, I mean, you're going to hear a million people tell you why you can't do it. It's just the nature of it. If you're early enough, you're going to seem crazy. And that's kind of where you need to be. Um, because by the time you don't seem crazy, somebody else already has the idea and they've, they've taken it there. So it's really about painting that picture and building that context. I mean, I would go into meetings in 2015, 2016 and get laughed out of offices. And they would say, you expect things to be flying above us? all the time. And I'm going, things fly above you all the time anyway. I mean, the aviation is not new, right? But if you look at where the choke points are in last mile logistics, if you look at, um, you know, think about the size of the first computer compared to what you can do with a smartphone, right? I mean, drones, they're every, there's nothing about them that would be considered out of what would be practical out of what is possible. And, you know, it, it is, it's a proven military technology that was just going to become more uh, compact, more efficient and be able to solve these last mile problems. I mean, there's just a lot of inflection points that are lining up with this industry 4.0 and automating. And um, how do you really leverage this technology to work for you instead of having to monitor it? And, um, we saw this coming together and it almost seemed crazy that somebody didn't see that, you know, to us, it was such a no brainer that, you know, there were plenty of days I would be sitting there and, and asking Alex, like, we can't be crazy. Right. And it, we'd go through our little checklist. All right. We, these are the assumptions that we've made, you know, technology is not going to stay where it is. Things are going to keep progressing. These big companies are putting money behind it. So clearly they see the same vision we do. Um, it's really being able to put that into a digestible pitch for an investor or for a partner, whatever it may be. Um, so they see that vision too. And a lot of it is trial and error. I mean, one thing I've always said is capital raising might be one of the most efficient systems ever if you know how to read it. And, you know, some guys don't know how to read it. You go in and somebody will tell you no, but they'll tell you no because right? Or just a flat out no. So either you didn't address the size of the market, I'm not comfortable not knowing the market, or you didn't tell me what your path to commercialization is, or um, whatever it may be for that reason for no. And if you go in and refine each one of those things, right? I mean, our, our pitch materials almost change weekly sometimes as we get new feedback from people and you have to be able to listen to it it's not personal they don't care who you are as a person they're not trying to you know demean you or belittle you but you know they're giving you valuable feedback and so being able to tap into that and listen to it is is critical in painting that picture in the sense that they need to see it yeah, it's so true, man. I mean, so many great things that you that you pointed to there. You know, one, I mean, other classical examples, if you think about it, like Airbnb, Uber. I mean, if you ask someone 10, 15 years ago, whether, you know, they'd rent out their, their couch, as an example, to a random stranger, they'd think you're crazy, right? Like, I mean, how the, how the hell would that even be a possibility? You know, what, what about the comfort levels, the hygiene, all these questions that come up early on into like angel invest in Airbnb, I mean, maybe now it sounds fine or in Uber, now it sounds fine, but like do this 15, 20 years ago, 
when the idea was just emerging and you, 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 you know, how many people would turn that down? You know, and I, I think these are just like nascent new things that are coming up. The other thing that you said was, which was really, really valuable was actually like finding or trying to find the gems in the nose that you get. I've heard this from a lot of successful entrepreneurs. Reed Hoffman talks a lot about this as well. And I've heard like ample case studies of where that can be helpful. But instead of just like hearing a straight no, because oftentimes it's not, it's not going to just to be like, okay, no, get out of my office. It's going to be no, because X, Y, Z. And if you remove the personal side and, and just try to remain as neutral as possible, you can leave that meeting with, even if it was a no, a lot of valuable insight as to how you can improve so that maybe another investor who it's a better fit for can see the, better, the bigger picture. Exactly. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that's huge, man. And I think it's probably just something you have to work on, right? Like that muscle of fine tuning yourself and maybe not being as insecure about the idea and, and going in with full confidence. It probably just takes some time to build, right? It, you you nailed it. I mean, it, you got to have thick skin and, you know, be able to take a bit of a, a beating sometimes to your, your ego. Um, but, you know, that's one of it. You got to throw your ego out the window, right? I mean, if there's any kind of humbling experience that I've ever gone through in my life, this is by far the the worst in that capacity right um but you need to be able to persevere and, and keep trucking and um that's really what's going to separate the successful from the not successful i mean you you hear um how many the, the greats along the last century have said you know the guy who quit didn't know how close he actually was right you just, you make a point in your head. I mean, it was the same thing as when I was in, um, you know, trying out to be a ranger in, in ranger indoctrination program. You know, it was, we were out at Coal Range, which is the closest thing I can mention to hell on earth, right? I mean, it is part of hell week and, you know, you're cold, you're wet, you're hungry, you're tired. And um, they needed to hit a certain number of people that washed out that day. And, we were sitting there. We hadn't slept in a day or two. We were we were just exhausted. And, um, you know, the cadre came over and lit a big bonfire over by their shack and laid out fresh uniforms and got out a bunch of McDonald's and, you know, some fans to blow it over to us. And they said, we're not stopping until 10 people go by that fire. And nobody quit at first. But then they said, all right, hit the wood line, right? And you're running this quarter mile of this wood line and coming back and you're, you're smoked out. And sure enough, some people just didn't want it bad enough. And they said, yeah, that, that warm uniform and that fire and that food sound really good right now. So there's always going to be reasons to quit. There's always going to be temptations. But if you told it to yourself every day in your head, like this is the only outcome I'll accept. And it's very important that you don't waver on that, you know, failure is quitting. That's, that's really, you, if you go and you do it and it kills you in the process, so be it. You're not a failure, but if you right. quit, you are. Yeah. And, and on that note, I mean, that definitely resonate with what you're saying. It, it's, it's such a, such a strong message to, and hopefully everyone, you know, is, is kind of getting that encouragement from it. Um, I'm curious on, on the flip side, although obviously that, you know, um, thankfully, it's panning out for Valkari. Like if you look at where the company is now, you guys are still growing. There's about 20 plus people, um, you know, within the team. You've raised a couple of million within the seed round. Uh, you know, I think in 2019 or 2020, you guys won the Timmy Award, which was massive for North America, if I'm not mistaken. There are so many headwinds, man, which were positive. 
I'm curious, one, what was your tipping point in giving you the confidence that, you know what, this like, just the, 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 like the, the grind dude, like battling the ax constantly is paying off. And aside from that, if that didn't happen, like if you didn't realize that tipping point, what advice would you give in terms of not quitting, but like, you know, that predicament, like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give myself six months. And if it doesn't work, this is going to be my plan B. Did you ever have that type of mindset? No, there was no plan B. Um, I had uh, about a quarter million dollars saved up and I put it all behind the patents. You know, there wasn't an option for a plan B. I'd, I'd have to sell my house and go move in with my parents. Right. I mean, it's, um, if you give yourself an out, you'll, you'll take it, right? If you read soon too, right? There's desperate ground and, you know, it's either, it's like Normandy, right? You either run back into that ocean and drown or you fight through the enemy. I mean, exactly. that's an option. So two, two options, yeah. give yourself an out, you'll find a reason to take it. There's temptations everywhere, but it's a saying we used to have in Ranger Regiment, right? You learn to embrace the suck, right? If it's, <laughs> raining if you're hungry if you're tired you're like wow at least it doesn't suck more at least i'm, I'm exactly it could always be worse right yeah i'm not broken leg right uh, <laughs> it could always be worse and so if you learn to love the suck right i mean it's just it just keeps getting harder and that's fine that's mm-hmm. what i'm for interesting and and what was just just quickly again on that quite like what was that tipping point for you was it you know the 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 closing of the seed round was it uh, get, getting the first pilot up and running? What, what, when did you, what, when was the moment, like vividly, if you can remember, that you looked at your, your co-founder, maybe your team and said, finally, like, I, I really feel now that we have something. You know, I don't know that it was necessarily one moment in particular. It was a series of moments, right? A lot of little wins, you know, it's, mm. it's never one big, oh, hey, here's the check and here's your big contract and here's your customer. I mean, it's not like the movies, right? I mean, it's, it's one little win at a time and slowly the wins become bigger and more frequent. And, you know, we were testing and we had successful tests on our landing station and then we started landing bigger partners and then we started getting a little bit bigger investments. And then next thing you know, we're in the wall street journal and Fox business and Forbes and, you know, in hindsight, it seems like it happened overnight, but in reality it was, you know, just years. Yeah. Pushing, pushing. I mean, you know, it's kind of just back to that. You just get up and grind. So true. And and, and curious on that front, maybe just shifting uh, quickly to the to the team side of things. You guys are obviously growing. You know, twenty or so people on the team. You know, it's obviously a, a growing. Let's call it a scale up as you guys move forward and progress. Curious, like, how do you maintain that culture? Uh, and, and wonder what, how do you define culture internally, number one? But number two, how do you maintain that as you continue to keep growing, even if it seems incrementally small uh, day by day? But obviously, if you look at it from a year perspective, it, it definitely amounts to a lot. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I always call it foxhole politics, right? I mean, when you're in that close of quarters, in those harsher conditions with people, you learn a lot. Right. I mean, you learn a lot about how people will react until you can almost anticipate what their reaction will be. And it's about finding people that want that, that don't mind it being terrible because they know it's going to be worth it in six months, a year, five years, whatever it may be. Um, you know, we've really 
I'd like to think Valkyrie is a family and, you know, we are very much acting like that, you know, we'll joke around and have fun and, you know, do those things, but it's very serious business. And so um, you got to find people that get that culture, get that the work comes first, but you don't need to necessarily worry about the frills, right? I mean, we don't wear suits to the office. Right show up in t-shirt and jeans, right? Whatever you're most comfortable. And I don't want you pretending to be what you think I want you to be. I want you to make your work stand for what you are, right? The proof is always in the pudding. Is that how you define leadership yourself? Like as a CEO? You know, I mean, I think I define leadership as setting the example. And I, I eat last and I take as much suck as everybody and then some right i mean you have to walk the walk otherwise it's it's the people will detect inauthenticity in seconds mm. right? they're not going to follow you into uncertainty and um you know kind of deal with the ups and downs if they don't think you're the one that's going to take them there right so it's it's a 24 7 365 job and you always have to be ready to stand up. I mean, there's no time I won't answer my phone. You know, I'll get up in the middle of the night if somebody's calling me and saying, we got a problem we got to fix. Great. Let's fix it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's, they've got to know deep in their bones that you are going to get them there and that they are going to get you there. I mean, it's 100% back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's two sided. I don't know if you've ever read uh, leaders eat last by Simon Sinek, but it's exactly like the, the whole premise is what you're talking about phenomenal yeah yeah i love that principle man um and and on that like i guess on the same note when when you're talking about like giving every inch of your bone into obviously this whole thing i think think the the the, sometimes the challenge with entrepreneurs is finding and i don't love the word balance because i know it's never going to be perfectly balanced but like how do you keep yourself in check mentally help you know physically spiritually whatever your your cadence is to be able to give this the energy it deserves for the long haul? I mean, personally, I don't think balance is achievable if you're in an early stage startup. It's just not. If, if you're going for balance, you probably are taking <laughs> In the wrong space, yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's embracing the suck. I mean, we knew what we were getting into and that was at the cost of everything else. You know, there's holidays that I've missed year after year, friends, birthdays I haven't gone to. And, you know, eventually they call less and less. And, you know, it is what it is. I mean, it's terrible. It's not something that always feels good, but it's what I signed up for. And I can't go back on that now, right? You can't kind of do this partly, right? It's it's all about giving it your all, right? If you can put in those extra hours on the weekend, if you can work an extra hour or two later at night to get something done, those are the little things that add up to a more productive week, more productive month, more productive year. I mean, that stuff compounds. And so, um, you know, I think I am probably one of the worst candidates or proponents for work-life balance. I mean, anybody that knows me will tell you I am not balanced at all when it comes to Valkyrie and everything else. Hmm. Makes makes a ton of sense. Um, yeah, it, uh, honestly, like every every, I guess CEO or co-founder, in, especially in the same stage that you're in now, 
it's really difficult to find that balance. But I think that's also like, it's it's like what you said, there's nobody forcing you to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. And I also think like balance, i.e. like that 50, like being in, in between can never be achieved regardless of where you are, whether you work in corporate, I mean, maybe depending on the job, obviously, but, or where you are in life. But I just feel like it's always going to be a pendulum. You know, some, some years you're going to have to give more to this. And let's say when Valkari gets to hundred employees, you have more formal structures in place. Like everything's kind of set. Not that you're going to coast, but you're, you're going to have different things to take care of and maybe a bit more time to, to your hands to do other things. Right. Yeah. I think that's just naturally the way it goes. It is. And, you know, the goal, you know, as you start to become a business and less of a startup is, you know, exactly. to get to a point where you're not entirely consumed and you've got the staff to support you and everything starts becoming a little bit more manageable. Um, but to try and achieve work-life balance, I think, is almost the, the wrong perspective and framing. I think it's more about finding harmony, right? Keeping the people that support you, keeping... Um, you know, the, the lifestyle that makes you better at being an entrepreneur, much more so than trying to, you know, sacrifice something here to make up for it there, right? It's just, you know, certain things are just incompatible with being a startup entrepreneur. It's just, you're never going to be able to do everything you want to. And, you know, as you might take care of your body, take care of your mind, take care of your, you know, spirituality and your relationships and your family, something will give. So one of those will break at one point. And the question is, is it the company or is it one of those? Right. Yeah. And, 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 and truthfully, like that, that decision is yours to make, you know, as we talked about, like there's nobody pointing a gun to your face and saying like, you should hopefully not you know, do this. Uh, it, it's on your own accord. Hey, Ryan, can you hear me? Oh. I don't know what happened. Uh, I don't know what happened. Uh, oh, there we go. Hey, I can hear okay. you now. Awesome. Perfect. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Um, anyways, I don't know if you said something. I, I'll edit this part out, but I don't know if you, you had anything to say to, just on that last part. No, it's, it's really just, I mean, you mentioned it, right? I mean, the, the motto for the 75th Ranger Regiment, sua sponte, you know, of their own accord. And it's, mm. Leave yeah. everything on the court, right? Yep. It's, it's, you have to have it built in. Nobody can motivate you to be that way. I mean, if it's not in who you are uh, in the fiber of your being, it's, it's not going to work. Now that's not to say that people can't develop that, right? It's not like it's something you, you are born with, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, something that you have to nurture and foster in, in yourself and, you know, something's going to be difficult and you can either push through or you can say, yep, that one got the best of me. Right. And if you keep pushing through, you'll get better at it. Yep. A hundred percent. Totally agree. Um, and, and just to wrap this up, Ryan, I definitely appreciate your time here. Um, I guess the, the final one is really, and I often ask this for, for guests, I'm curious on what you think of this, but maybe some, 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 lessons learned or or experiences generally aside from the ones you've mentioned specifically that tied to your military background um it could be even books resources a mentor what was one or maybe two or three things that really helped you along the way specifically for your entrepreneurial journey i'd say the first thing is leave your ego at the door right i mean there's there's going to be a lot of people telling you what to do and a lot of people giving you advice but when you find the people that actually know what they're talking about, somebody you'd actually want to trade places with, 
they might see it from a different angle and from experience they have, right? So thinking you have all the answers is not the right way to go. You know, I would definitely say drop your ego and, you know, things that you mentioned, like Simon Sinek, you know, I always read Sun Tzu uh, that, that's applicable in almost every facet of life. Um, mm -hmm. Meeting with people, whether it's, you know, college professors, whether it's people who have been successful entrepreneurs, whether it's, you know, billion dollar CEOs, you know, I mean, you'd be amazed who will take your emails and your calls if you try, you know, it's, you can't defeat yourself in your head. And so finding those resources, finding those mentors, finding those, you know, people, right? I mean, we ended up going through CDL uh, up in Canada, and it was, mm -hmm. it was an amazing experience, right? I mean, especially they sit you in front of a room and some of the best investors and entrepreneurs in Canada sit there and just grill you and make you feel one inch tall. But <laughs> it's amazing because they give you the feedback you might not hear anywhere else and you know they're at the top of their game. So right. you know, there's not necessarily, uh, you know, go read this book and you'll figure it out or go talk to this person, but understanding that it's going to take a, a tapestry of that and how you implement it and how you execute that advice is really the, the difference between, um, you know, if you're going to learn from your mistakes and be successful or if you're not. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.